I'm Rick Wilson. Welcome back to The Enemies List. Today, our guest is Bob Woodward. To say someone is a legend in American journalism, the first name that springs to mind in this era is Bob Woodward. Since the unbelievably consequential reporting of the Watergate scandal in the 1970s, Bob Woodward has been a name where when the White House switchboard hears Bob Woodward wants to speak to the president, there's a sense of either trepidation, fear, panic, or running for the exits and pretending that you weren't ever in the White House at all. He is a guy who has enormously deep sourcing. He has, for many, many decades, been able to tell stories from inside the Oval Office and inside the West Wing and inside administrations. And for many decades, Bob Woodward has served as one of the historians of the inner workings of every single administration since Richard Nixon. And I'll tell you a brief Bob Woodward story. When I was working for Dick Cheney in the Pentagon as a young, young Schedule C appointee, you know, one of my areas was was press and public affairs and media stuff. And when we heard that he was working on a book that would later become The Commanders, I realized that there would be people who would who, who would prosper from it and who would not. Uh, and some did not survive well out of that book. But it was a real lesson about watching how thorough and how smart his process of interviewing as many people as he could and putting together the fact patterns in a way that very few other people did. I'm delighted to have Bob Woodward on the enemies list today to talk about his new book, The Trump Tapes. If you haven't listened to it, I really recommend it. It gives you a window into Trump's psyche, into Trump's behavior, into the narcissism and the need and the the selfishness that defined the 45th president. He's truly revealed, I think. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list. Democrats want Republicans dead. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody. The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified. It's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. (laughs) I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. Without any further ado, let me welcome Bob Woodward to the podcast. I think, you know, we're recording this, folks, on Wednesday morning, uh, just after a very consequential national election. Um, and, And while Bob Woodward's book is about the first Trump administration, I mean, Bob, we still saw the giant shadow Trump casts over the Republican Party in the election results from last night. Yes. I, uh, some of the exit polling said, oh, people didn't consider him a factor in the election. Uh, I <laughs> think, you know, he is a giant factor always. I think lots of people want to say, oh, we're not really voting to support Trump or against Trump, but I think that's exactly what happened. And uh, Mm -hmm. Trump has not worn well. And I put out these audio tapes and you really see how he lives in his own world. He is only concerned about himself. And Mm -hmm. there's much discussion about democracy and I think justifiably so, but insufficient discussion of Trump 
not understanding the presidency and being totally out of it in terms of particularly on the pandemic, which I focus on. Sure. And he just does not understand the simple things like I have to think about protecting the people, not Donald Trump's electoral chances. It really was striking how just... And look, I've written two books about this guy, but, you know, as an outside observer and and somewhat about the Republican Party. But you felt like it felt like these interviews that you were doing with him, you were like an anthropologist. You sort of prompted him and and let him run. And I found that I found that the, the he always came back to that center of gravity of his own ego, his own needs, his own sort of his own sort of like really stubborn beliefs about what he was owed and who he was and how important it was. I mean, when you when you compare him to the other presidents you've you've talked to and interviewed, I mean, is there anything even in the ballpark of of this kind of mental character of of Trump? Well, the, and Nixon of course had an ego, but I never know of mm-hmm. Nixon saying as Trump said to me in this whispered almost conspiratorial voice. Oh, all the ideas are mine. Everything is mine. And, uh, and, and this is one of the examples. I, I had it in my book, Rage, quoted him saying this, but when you hear him saying it, it takes on uh, a meaning and an intimacy and a kind of... Uh, declaration everything is mine i mean that's that is preposterous <laughs> that is uh he's hurting himself with that attitude and he hurt himself dramatically and i think uh, we saw last night the the people uh, mm-hmm. Kind of saying, uh, lots of people, you know, they li- really like Trump. They support him, tens of billions of people. A lot of people mm-hmm. saying, you know, I like him, but I we don't need him. <laughs> this is not good for the country. <laughs> this is uh, just yeah. too off the circuit of what a president should be doing. It's out of bounds. And yeah, maybe I like him. I love the tax cuts. I like the kind of feistiness he displays. But you know what? This is not what we need. When I, uh, in the 90s, wrote a piece for the Washington Post about Colin Powell, who was getting ready, Mm -hmm. uh, supposedly to run, and his autobiography was coming out then, and his publisher said to him, uh, you know, just don't go out there and say you're not running because that'll kill the book sales. And uh, (laughs) I wrote a piece saying, uh, in the magazine for the Washington Post, his picture of Powell there, and uh, the quote is, who needs it? And Powell, Mm -hmm. the whole Powell doctrine of, overwhelming force. You don't do things unless you're absolutely certain. Well, the world of politics is the world of uncertainty. And he was just, he he fled 
well, you know him and you know the whole, I mean, what an, what an interesting man, but he was not going to run for president again. Yeah. He did not, he did not want to, uh, he did not want to put his family, Alma, you know, almost, almost vote in that was a very powerful vote, but he didn't want to put himself and his family through this stuff. It's just, whereas, you know, if, if there's a polar opposite to like a character of national service, it's, you know, Colin Powell versus Donald Trump, uh, you know, it, it just strikes that that's a really interesting contrast, I think, between the two. You know, you've said, Bob, in these in these tapes and in your broader reporting uh, that you've got no doubt that Trump is trying to destroy democracy. And I mean, look, you're preaching to the choir on this one with me. But how do you make that case to you know, the people, there are still legions of Trump supporters, even after last night's disaster. There are still tens of millions of Americans who believe he's the second coming and that having him back is okay, even if it costs us the sort of democratic underpinnings of this republic. How, how do you make that case and what, what insight would you give them from what you know about Trump that would that would try to penetrate that shield? Well, first of all, in the audio tapes, I asked him 600 questions and there was only one he wouldn't answer. And that was the one I asked, well, people say Trump's not going to lead. Now he's president at this time and leave the White House. Trump's not going to leave the White House. And, uh, and he said, well, I'm just not going to comment. Now for Trump not to comment is stunning and i fault myself for not following up on that but i think he had it in his mind that he can take this path and if you look at the speech he gave at his convention in 2020 when Mm -hmm. he's being nominated by his party for president he's president at the time as the republican nominee and uh he literally says, well, if I don't win, it was stolen. And you know, mm-hmm. that is, so he's, he's laying the groundwork. And then you see this insistence on, uh, that he, that he won and come on, what is democracy? Uh, it is, uh, the winner wins and the loser loses. And mm-hmm. he persistently, <laughs> won't accept that. Well, isn't that uh, Roman numeral one in democracy that uh, the vote, I mean, Trump even did leave the White House. He didn't try to stay. Mm-hmm. So uh, he, he has, rev- and, and again, this is so unusual for me to be able to ask a sitting president in the middle of a camp political campaign, endless questions and follow-up questions. And uh, if you want to mm-hmm. take some, I mean, I, I can go through some examples of where it, I'd love it's that. just I'd love chilling that. that he will not uh, engage in his responsibility. Now, You know, one of the things I learned a long time ago is chronology is king when you want to understand Mm -hmm. that what happened. And 
what happened with Trump. He shut down the country on March 13th, 2020, uh, because of the pandemic. Yes. And uh, then uh, I did interviews with him uh, on March 19th, where that's is where he talked about going to see his son, 13-year-old Baron. Baron is mm -hmm. asking, Dad, what's happening? Um, all my friends are talking about uh, the coronavirus. And so here, this is the moment of the parent sitting on the child's bed, you know, one of the most intimate, honest discussions a parent can have with a child. And Trump says, oh, uh, China brought it in. It's China's fault. They could have uh, they could have done something, but they kept it secret. Now, I didn't know on March 19th that took me until May 1st, many months, to find out that on January 28th, two months before the Barron discussion, Trump had been given the starkest, most comprehensive warning about the virus coming uh, as Matt Pottinger, the deputy national security advisor, mm -hmm. put it, uh, three alarms on a three alarm fire, that it was a tidal wave coming. Right. And so here he's not telling the truth to his son in that moment. He's not telling the truth right. to me. And most importantly, he's not telling the truth to the American public. It's going to blow away. It's going to go away when he knows from January 28th that half the cases are going to be asymptomatic, meaning they spread mm -hmm. uh, without showing symptoms. I mean, what a, a unbelievable, uh, and this is where I say, the more morality of the uh, Trump presidency went into free fall when he had no consideration of that. Right. I, th I think that, I think you're right about that, that, that moment where it wasn't just his immediate circle or his business partners or his political allies. Yeah. It was the whole country. It was, it was, you know, 300 million plus Americans who were in a position where his lies to them about the severity of it, about the spread of it, about the contagious, you know, nature of it, and about, you know, horse dewormer and other like imaginary cures, all of it combined. I think that's a great thing. It's like, it is a moral freefall. It's just an absolute collapse um, as a leader. Yeah, and it, it's, and so the more you look at it, you realize that it's, it's a real tragedy for the country. Suppose mm -hmm. when he gave, I mean, if, if you had play his State of the Union address on February 4th, talking to 40 million people to Congress, constitutionally right. mandated report to Congress and mm -hmm. to the public. A week earlier, he'd received, 10 days earlier, he'd received this warning about the virus is going to be a tidal wave. It's going to be like 1918 when 650,000 people died in the country. 
and you hear him just say, well, China's got this problem and so forth. They have it under control. We're working with them. Everything is fine. Uh, I mean, suppose he had just come out and said, and this is not raising the bar on expectation level. Uh, you don't expect him to right. be FDR and say, this is going to be, this is the struggle of our life and we'll win. And, uh, but you do expect him to kind of say, you know, a funny thing happened in the Oval Office at the top secret <laughs> presidential daily briefing uh, in the afternoon of January 28th when my national security advisor came in and said the virus is going to be the biggest national security threat to your presidency. Not Iran, not Russia, mm -hmm. not China, but the virus. And this is what they told me. And I don't want to panic people. We don't know what's going to happen, but they, this is what they told me. And I want to share it with the American people and let people go Right. and make their own judgment and then we would have a colossal debate and uh, Trump would have been reelected in 2020 if he'd done the right thing, if he'd rung the bell but what he was worried about was his re-election and that this, I mean he told me I mean you, you see these tapes Right, you know, he says it outright. Yeah, it, 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 it clearly. I mean, that's that's the moral calculus of the presidency. Is yes, you're running for re-election, but sometimes there are consequential things that a, that a president has to face up to, and he he. I mean, he's a master at that in these tapes of not facing up to his own, you know, responsibilities or culpabilities at any point. I just, I, I think you're. I think the fact that you focus on on COVID in this. It's really the understory of the whole 2020 election. If COVID had never happened, I don't know that he could have. I think that's right. And he said, look, I was running 10 to 20, or I'm sorry, 10 to 15 points. I was going to be reelected. And then this virus came along. And it's like it was a, a, a plague on his presidency rather than on, which it was, rather than on the people and uh, failure to consider that. Uh, another. Uh, part mm -hmm. on the the virus, so uh, on he shut the country down on March thirteenth, and uh, mm -hmm. so the next two weeks, I I said, my God, this is a big deal. I thought North Korea was going to be the focus of my book and foreign policy for him, and I spent two those two weeks. Uh, interviewing Dr. Fauci, Dr. Redfield, head of mm -hmm. CDC, other experts, and uh, said, what should Trump be doing in terms of organizing the country? And they told me they had these coronavirus task force meetings where uh, Pence was running them and uh, there uh, virus deniers in the room and Fauci couldn't break through. 
Trump was not listening, was not paying attention. So I had all of this. I could call Trump and get him on the phone for a half hour or an hour. So I, I kind of, not kind of, I went out of my lane and I spent the call on April 5th saying, these are the 14, 16 things the experts say you should do. You need Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. big head. You need a World War II mobilization. You need a Manhattan right, right. Project, like was developed for mm-hmm. uh, the atomic bomb. And he, we go through it, and he's, you know, you can just hear him wiggling in his chair. Almost, he's kind of bored by this. And then at the end, he said, "Well, did you write those down?" And I said, "Yes, I did." Well, read them again. And I thought, well, he's got someone in the office who's going to write it down. He's going to think about this. And Mm -hmm. so this is this moment where I am carrying the information I get from the experts on this to the president, because at least till he seems to be listening to me. Sure. And uh, at the end of the call, my wife, Elsa Walsh, who's, worked at the Post, was a staff writer mm-hmm. for the New Yorker. Sure, sure. And, and listening to this on the speakerphone, Trump knows. I say, she's on, Elsa's on, here he Hi, Elsa, and he, uh, you know, very friendly in his way. And so after this conversation, and it's on the tape, so it's I put it out uh, in the tapes, no laundering of things that are a little embarrassing potentially. And she said, you're yelling at him. You're telling him what to do. That is not your job. You're supposed to get information from him. And I end it by saying, we are in a different world, sweetie. You may have departed your lane. Everybody's got a morning ritual. I know I do. And I want to feel like I'm getting my day going. I want to feel like I'm moving. And more than coffee sometimes, it's making sure you're clean, squared away, put together. You can get your day started by upping your shave game with Harry's sleekest razor yet, the craft handle. I like to use it because I've got to shave this giant dome of mine every day. So I got to keep it shiny. I have a beard, but I keep my neck clean front and back, do all the miscellaneous trimming. And the new craft handle, it actually is a lot more precision, at least that I found, with the new grip. I really like it a lot. You'll be getting quality shaving for a really amazing price. For now, they're offering the craft handle starter set for 10 bucks. It's a $17 value. So this is something you really should try. And if you don't like it, it's on them, guys. They stand behind the product. They guarantee it. How can you get a hold of the craft handle, the latest, greatest from Harry's? It's simple. Get it delivered to your door for 10 bucks at harrys.com slash enemies list. That's harrys.com slash enemies list. But it was for, you know, I think an, an urgent, uh, an urgent moral purpose in that case, because, you know, the, you, you mentioned like the, the, the virus deniers were in the room with him and, and, and what you were doing, I think was trying to get you, you were actually operating in the way that, the, that that was the only way to get things to happen sometimes in the Trump world, which is there's no hierarchy or bureaucracy. It's all this ad hoc kind of chaos yes. around him all the time. And, you know, sometimes somebody will put an idea out there, whether it's good or bad, and he'll he'll adopt it. I think you were I think you were absolutely doing well, the right thing I on that. Mean, I, you I, know, Bob, uh, you mentioned a couple of friends have 
said, um, you know, you really did kind of cross the line. And one of them asked, said, what would Catherine mm -hmm. Graham and Ben Bradley think of you doing this? Catherine Graham, the owner, publisher, the host during Watergate, mm -hmm. Bradley, the editor during Watergate. Mm -hmm. And I thought about it, and my response is, in the 80s, we were dealing with lots of sensitive national security matters. Uh, Bradley and Catherine were involved in them. And often Ben wouldn't publish when the White House or the CIA would say, you're going to get somebody killed, you're going to blow a multi-billion dollar operation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I went through that with them. And they always said, we're going to be aggressive journalists and we're going to push beyond the line that they're comfortable with, but we're not knowingly going to expose a national security uh, surveillance operation that's valuable to the country. There's nothing corrupt or illegal about it, and we're going to be careful. And that we have this duty as human beings that supersedes our responsibility as journalists. Yeah, I think I think that I, I, I look. I think this is a, 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 a trivial sin in the journalistic space. From from what from what I what little I can speak to that, but you know, you mentioned that you had started out thinking this was going to be a book about or a, a story about foreign policy. And you cover some of the, the the obsession he has with Kim Jong Un, and I'd love to hear more about uh, that. And I think our audience would love to hear more about that because <clears throat> that was always one of the strangest aspects of Trump's uh, presidency, in my mind. This this incredibly obsessive focus on Kim, and and the and the weird relationship yes, between those two what, men. What happened is Trump decided uh, he and Kim exchanged some public threats that were pretty chilling. Mm -hmm. And sure. uh, the CIA and the Pentagon had assessed that uh, Kim obviously was uh, a thug, a, a madman, very young, very inexperienced, but he had several dozen nuclear weapons. He'd got uh, missile launchers from China. He had concealed uh, and uh, dispersed and uh, hardened those missiles and weapons. Right. So it was a real, real threat. And what Trump did, he said, well, I'm going to meet with Kim and... Uh, and it, it was, it was Trump as the Lone Ranger in the first interview in 2016, Bob Costa and I did with Trump. Trump mm -hmm. said he's the Lone Ranger. He, he, and this was the Lone Ranger diplomacy, which drove anyone who had any experience with Kim or diplomacy that you, you, and so I, I asked Trump in the plainest way, I said, you know, the CIA says Kim is crafty, but stupid. And I mean, you have to hear this. Trump <laughs> comes on and, and, and he says, oh, I hope you report that. 
because Kim is crafty and, you know, and smart. Well, why does the CIA say he's stupid, Trump? Because I know, only I know, only I know with this. And again, I, on the written page, it's, it's, but it, in the audio tape, it's this certainty, this of mm-hmm. that struck me all all the time he's like he ne- the yeah. guy never has a second exactly. thought and so what are you trying to do with kim uh force him to the uh, bring him to the negotiating co- uh, table no 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 it's it's not that it's it's uh instinct instinct and you just, you hear it, and it's kind of like, I'm going to do this on instinct. Well, you can't do anything in the presidency only on instinct. You can set a path, but you've got to, the presidency's full of self, but you've got to have a cabinet and advisors. You need to filter things. And the Secretary of Defense, James Mattis, was terrified. Yep. Sleeping in his gym clothes might be mm-hmm. awakened for a top secret emergency conference. Mattis, I mean, I was going to open the book, Rage, with this scene of Mattis going to the National Cathedral to pray about, my God, I may have to use our nuclear weapons should, in retaliation right. to to protect the country from Kim if he sent um, one nuclear weapon, I would have to destroy his arsenal. And and then Mattis is asking the again the the moral question, do I have a right to kill millions of people to protect my country? And he said he's like Lincoln at a, a certain I mean it's it's one of these things that's so real and emotional and gripping. And Mattis literally feels mm-hmm. he has to fall on his knees like Lincoln. You, all you can do is fall on your knees given the magnitude of the carnage that might be before us. Lincoln with the Civil War, of course. So, uh, anyway... I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, knowing Jim Mattis somewhat, uh, you know, he is a, he is one of the, he's a, he's a considered and thoughtful guy. And, and you combine that with the knowledge of what a nuclear exchange is really about, which I suspect Trump's knowledge of it is incredibly superficial. Um, and, and would think, oh, you know, oh, look, that's a pretty, a pretty mushroom cloud versus, oh God, I just killed 10 million people. Um, I'm sure uh, I don't know how anybody at, at that level, I don't know how Mattis Tillerson and a variety of the other serious national security people, I don't know how they survived it. I don't know how you, you, you they could bear up under that. Well, they for that did long. by containing Trump. Now I, I think Trump had a sense of what, how dangerous a, a nuclear exchange would be. People worried about this and, 
part of me worried about it, but I think he was, um, I, I think he was not on the path to starting a nuclear war, but he didn't realize how precarious it is and how Kim Jong-un, I mean, this is, this guy's he's, you know, he's in his early thirties, no experience. He has, he's starving millions of people in country. He's killing right. the opposition and Trump had, and he, he eventually gave me these letters exchanged with Kim Jong-un and which if you read them, uh, at one point Kim says to Trump, you know, when we meet again, uh, we're, it will be like a scene out of a fantasy film. <laughs> He knew exactly oh the goodness. button on Trump to push. <laughs> you know, we're going to carry this um, negotiation. And I said, well, you know, you have these meetings. He said, you know, I mean, can, can I, I won't use the F word, but he, he says, you know, I gave him two effing meetings. So what? You know, that's, well, Kim has uh, a goal here and he's reeling the, the leader of the free world into his orbit and uh, you know right. you, you can't you don't want to do that as president but trump just it was uh, you know like filings to a magnet just race to get right mm -hmm. there watching a con artist get conned is always one of those sort of great pleasures in the world and i think i think yeah, kim may not be smart but he is crafty he's got the that kind of charm and feral skill that maybe Trump saw something about himself in that, in, in sort of the con game that Trump was there, that Kim was playing against. And maybe that was what appealed to him in some weird level. I don't know. I mean, it will take a panel of psychiatrists to answer that question. <laughs> well, Bob, let me ask you one last question and thank you so much for your time today. Trump is very, very close now to announcing his 2024 presidential campaign. We've got about a week. Uh, until he's, you know, teased that he's going to announce and get in the race. Even after uh, last night, I don't think he is going to change his course on that. You know, so leaving aside all the odds making for the moment, how what would you how would you say he views that contest for himself? What do you what do you think his his like mental framework of running for president again is uh, based on everything you know about him yeah, in this remarkable book? Yeah, um, combat the next presidential election, and he thinks it's. You know, if it's Biden, Biden's weak. He was always telling me, you hear this, you know, Biden can't put two sentences together. He's stumbling around. He's so, uh, and so this is the gladiators in the arena. And Trump believes I can defeat this man. Now, what happened last night, I think, mm -hmm. is historically significant. And I think that... Uh, even Trump will say, "Well, look at what look look at what old Joe did. Old Joe pulled mm. something off, and he did. And uh, it, you know, it was lots of people, but lot, I, I I think uh, I think it's a it's a big moment for Trump, and uh, I think mm -hmm. you know the gladiators and the." arena all of a sudden you know the 
the like the famous movie Gladiators. You know, the <laughs> the guy can even though he's wounded can come back and win. Right, right. It's uh, I, I think that's right, Bob. I think he's gonna. I mean, I, 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 Trump has never been one to like look at a loss that he caused in a business or or his personal relationships or in in the presidency and say, oh, that's my responsibility. That's my fault. I'm gonna learn from this. He always seems to to center back to the one thing that matters. And yes, that's Trump and. Uh, now, I, I think if, if I may uh, plague you with this, uh, the question I'm of dealing with and uh, people in my business, you know, what's what are the uh, strategies that should be to deal with the second Trump, uh, or, you know, a third run at the presidency? Do you have any thoughts you mm-hmm. You know, I I do actually. And one of the things that we learned in 2020 was any organization Donald Trump runs, no matter how competent they are at any skill or any, any strategy, he can always be distracted and pulled off of that and cause the entire campaign or White House or infrastructure around him to chase after him. So one of the things I've always done in, in running stuff against him is get in his head. And play to that ego and that vanity and that craziness that that obsesses about how do I look on TV? How am I? How do? How are people perceiving me? Because he always wants to know that you know the cameras on him, the spotlights on him. And as we 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 were able to pull him away a lot in 2020, get him off message and off target. Um, that's the number one thing you got to realize that no matter how smart the people around him are, and and, and by the way, we're hearing that the 2024 team they're much more competent. They're not. Jared or Brad Parscale, they're they're real campaign operators coming in. You know, it's gonna it's gonna be uh, tough for them when Trump gets distracted and runs off after a rabbit. You know, like a like a hound after a rabbit. Uh, he's the vulnerability of anything he does. His own his own psyche and his character and his his ego. They're the central vulnerabilities. Uh, you know, so it's not just trolling when you've got a fish on the hook, and and that's the thing you've got to do is always. You know, get into Trump's brain, get into Trump's psyche, and Biden got there a little bit. We helped a little bit, but it's that's going to be, I think, even more important as this race comes down to, you know, a, it will be a true referendum on so, America. But or Trump. how do you do that as a reporter? It was only a series of uh, accidents that I was able to have these phone calls and meetings with Trump for eight hours, and literally in the, in the audio book, yeah. I break frame 224 times mm-hmm. and often co- offer commentary or long introduction or long right. uh, epilogue. And, uh, you, mm-hmm. you know, if he announces and I call in there and I say, okay, I'd like to do another repeat, uh, like to call him and do interviews, I think he might uh, say no. Though he did say... Well, I think though, if you, it, it, but look, you are one of the reasons that he he wanted to talk to you, is that you you have a, a stature as somebody who is one of the historians of our of our presidential world, and he wants to be seen as the best, the biggest, the most important, the most consequential, and I think that's how you have, you know I think that that ego is always Trump's greatest vulnerability and his his need for affirmation and for for focus and for attention 
I think it always brings him back, no matter how many times you've 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 wrecked him, you know, as a, a or, or said something about him that he disagrees with or, or that he yells at you about. I mean, look, it's 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 the Maggie Haberman world. You know, he the, the love hate relationship of Trump to her coverage of him is what brings him back all the time. I think you're in the same spot. I think I think there are not many people who could get his attention at that a certain level, but it is always about. I mean, having studied this guy enough to like wreck my own brain about it, he's always after people's focus. They he always wants them to look at him again, and and I and so I think that's you know what I described earlier the, the strategic approach to a campaign. I think also plays into how you approach him as a reporter as a okay, journalist. Well, interesting. So. Uh, it's going to be a long road, well, Bob. And it's, but there is a – see, I I think one of the things that happened last night, voters realized, yeah. even voters who like him, that they realized mm-hmm. him being president again is not in the national interest. There's too much out there about yeah. the uh, – unreliability, unpredictability, the self-centeredness. And you could like Trump mm-hmm. and be a supporter and kind of say, you know, as, as I was saying about, you know, uh, not me, you know, I'm not, you know, not this time. And I, I think that uh, happened yesterday and leading up to this uh, critical historical election. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Bob, thank you so very much for joining us today. It has been an absolute honor to have you and a fantastic conversation and uh, hope to talk to you again. And, uh, and, and like I said, it's going to be a long road with this guy. So we're not out of the woods yet. All right, folks. Entry on this week's enemies list is just the easiest goddamn thing I've ever done. We're recording this on Wednesday morning after a hugely consequential election. The enemies list today includes every fucking conventional wisdom story journalist, reporter, everybody who was like, the red wave is coming. There is an inevitable tide of destiny which will destroy the Democratic Party. Guess what? It was bullshit. And you guys got played. The reporters that I know who I like, who I've worked with for years and years, many of you were writing very smartly argued stories that said, you know, we're seeing all these Republican polls and it's inevitable. There's nothing to stop it. Guess what? You were being played by Josh Holmes. You were being played by the NRCC. You were being played by a whole bunch of Republican operators who just spun the shit out of you. Come on, people. Do better. This was a, a a year where where the consequential nature of this election meant you should dive in a little further than the easy talking points from the from 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 the Senate Leadership Fund or from Josh Holmes or from or from anybody around any of these Republican super PACs. Come on, you guys got pantsed by these people, and the fact that the Trump candidates went down in flames around the country is the biggest missed story in the in the world. And the idea that you both sides these campaigns is why you got pantsed. It's why you got clowned by these people. So come on, do better and get your shit together. You're on the enemies list. (laughs) 